2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 to 18. Verse 1. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say, His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us, to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged. So that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. This is the reading of God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word to us today. We pray that as we read it, that we would treasure it, that we would submit to it, and that you would help us to understand what it is you have to say to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What makes a great leader? It's a question we ponder whenever there's an election, or whenever we need to choose leaders at school, or at work, or for a team. Uh, it's a question my high school wrestled with when it came to selecting our school captains and prefects. When I was in year 12, the captains and vice-captains were voted in by us, the year 12 students. But the rest of the prefects were selected by the teachers. 
So basically, the process was a semi-democratic popularity contest. However, in the following years, the school decided to change the system so that prefects were appointed based on merit. It was a complicated formula based on things like how many awards you received and what your academic record was, what extracurriculars you're involved in, and so on. And so it became a sort of a meritocracy. Uh, the new system showed its flaws in the first year. Because there were so many overachieving students, they ended up appointing about 50 new prefects that year. Now, we all have different opinions about what makes a great leader. Think of the leaders you would be inclined to follow, whether that's at school or at work, in a team, in a club, or in a group. Maybe it's the visionary leader, someone who can cast a bold vision that no one else could have thought of, a vision that will inspire people and elevate the team beyond anything they could have ever imagined. Maybe it's the charismatic leader, someone who has such a charming personality and presence that people can't help but be drawn to be loyal and devoted to this person. Maybe it's the pragmatic leader, someone who can not only set goals, but also execute the plan. They empower and manage their teams to ensure peak performance and efficiency and that they stay on task. Or maybe it's the relatable leader, the one you feel like you know and understand, who will be your mentor, but also will be your buddy, who, will, who you feel truly cares for you as a person. There's someone you can trust and confide in, someone you know who will back you 100%. We all have different ideas of what makes a great leader. And sometimes different leadership styles will be more appropriate or effective depending on the situation or the people or the context. What sort of leadership is appropriate for the Christian life? What makes a great leader in our church, in our ministries, in our families? That's the question that our passage raises for us today. Now, as we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul finds himself needing to defend his style of leadership. Of all the churches that Paul has written to, it is his relationship with the Corinthian church which is the most strained. He knows that his previous letters to the church ruffled some feathers because he spoke very strongly against the wrong behavior of various people within the church. And so Paul is writing this current letter, 2 Corinthians, to set the record straight and to ease the tension uh, that he has with the church before he comes to visit them again in person. Uh, in the chapters just before our passage, Paul talks about collecting money from all the churches in Minor Asia to support the church in Jerusalem. Paul is hoping that sorting out the financial collection before he arrives at the Corinthian church will ease some of this tension because it means he doesn't have to have that tough generosity conversation when he arrives. And now, in chapter 10, he turns to the matter of his leadership. It turns out that not only have Paul's letters been unpopular with the church, 
But there have also been other seemingly more impressive leaders ministering within the church. And it's clear that the Corinthians have been favoring their ministry over Paul's. And so not only does Paul need to ease the relational tension with the Corinthians, he also needs to defend and justify his apostolic authority against these other leaders. Later on, Paul labels these leaders as super apostles. And you can almost hear the sarcastic tone he's using. Yes, yes, these super apostles are so impressive. And so in chapter 10, Paul defends his leadership by contrasting it against the leadership styles of these super apostles. And there are three traits in particular which Paul calls out. And so let's take a look at each of these traits in turn. Firstly, Paul calls out the worldliness of their leadership. If you have a look at verses 1 to 6 of our passage, you can tell that the Corinthians think Paul is too unimpressive to be a leader, especially when there are these bold and confident super apostles who are appealing to the masses with their fancy leadership skills. Have a look at how Paul defends himself. And I I can see that there are two layers to his defense. The first layer is that his being unimpressive is intentional. Paul says that he is humble when face to face, but bold at a distance. And the Corinthians had come to expect the opposite. These super apostles were bold and confident in person uh, when they were close. But Paul is being quite deliberate with the way he approaches the Corinthians. Have a look at verse 2. He doesn't want to be the bold leader type. Even though he he knows he will have to show some boldness to a certain extent with some people there when he actually eventually arrives. But he doesn't want to arrive and immediately stamp his authority around because he knows that his relationship with them is strained. Instead, we see in verse 1 that he wants to come to them by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He is intentionally putting aside the boldness that we might expect of a leader, and instead he wants to come to them with humility. That's the first layer to his defense. And then he comes to the second layer. Paul says that despite his intentions, he actually will be bold towards those who suspect them of walking according to the flesh, but it's not in the way that they might expect. Have a look at verses 3 to 6. Paul describes his boldness as warfare, but he's not waging war according to the flesh. His boldness is not boldness in the worldly sense, like how some leaders rely on their confidence and their personality to win over the masses. Rather, his boldness comes, do you see there, from the power of God. It's a power that is not of the world, but is set against the world. It's a power that demolishes the worldly arguments and the worldly attitudes that are opposed to the knowledge of God. 
It's a power that captures our thoughts and desires and directs them towards obedience to Christ. What is this divine power? Well, it's the power that comes from the message of the gospel. What Jesus achieves by dying on the cross and coming back to life is a victory from the strongholds of this world, from the sin that darkens our hearts to the knowledge of God and entangles our wills so that we rebel against Him. Paul's boldness comes from the power of the gospel. He's not trying to win people over through his personality or his rhetorical flair or other worldly measures of leadership. He's trying to win people over to Christ. And he's doing so through the power of the gospel. And this is what sets his leadership apart from the super apostles. See, Paul's leadership is not worldly leadership, but it's leadership drawn from the power of the gospel. And this leads Paul to call out the second trait of the super apostles, self-confidence. It seems like the Corinthians were interpreting the confidence of the super apostles as a mark of having a strong ministry, especially when compared to Paul's perceived lack of confidence. But Paul tells the Corinthians there in verse 7 to look at what is before your eyes. Literally, pay attention to the facts. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. Paul says it doesn't really matter how self-confident someone is. Because the appearance of confidence is not what determines whether someone belongs to Christ and therefore fit to lead his people. And notice again how Paul is undermining worldly expectations. The charge against Paul's leadership is that in person, he lacks confidence in his demeanor and his speech, even though he portrays confidence with his strong and severe written words. And not much has changed for us today, right? You know, we're much more likely to respect a leader who exudes confidence in the flesh than a keyboard warrior who hides behind a screen, typing their strongly worded emails and messages from the safety of their home office. Paul says it's not about appearing confident. Rather, it's about the authority that you carry. Sure, a confident person gives off the appearance of being in charge, but if it turns out that they don't have any legitimate authority, then that confidence means nothing. Whether Paul exudes confidence or not is a moot point because his authority comes from the Lord Jesus himself. The authority that Paul is referring to here is the special commissioning that Paul received from the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. Elsewhere in the Bible, we learn that Paul was the early Christian movement's worst enemy. But Jesus appears to him in all his risen glory and gives Paul the task of proclaiming his gospel to the nations. It is this authority to proclaim the gospel which gives Paul's letters his weight and force. 
And it is by this same authority that Paul will act when he is present amongst the Corinthians. You see, unlike the super apostles, Paul's authority doesn't come from his own outward self-confidence. Rather, it is the authority from Jesus which gives him the inward confidence in his leadership because he is engaged in the task of ministering the gospel. Paul's leadership is not self-confident leadership, but leadership bearing the authority from the gospel. By now you're beginning to see the point that Paul is trying to make concerning Christian leadership. Uh, Paul rounds out this final section of our passage by calling out the foolishness of self-promotion. This is what Paul says in verse 12. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Now, I remember being warned before going to Bible college. Uh, I went to Bible college to train for ministry. I remember being warned before going to Bible college not to fall into the trap of comparison. You see, it can be really tempting uh, when you're at somewhere like Bible college to whip out your ministry resume in casual conversation and compare your experiences, compare your skills, your gifts. And in fact, uh, at the beginning of last year, one of our lecturers sat my whole year group down and shared an observation that, he, uh, that the rest of the faculty had had about our year group. And they had observed that our year group was very competitive. He warned us that if we kept going in this competitiveness, then our interactions would move from comparing academic performance to one day in the future comparing our ministry achievements. And, that, uh, and if that kept going on, that would lead to one of two outcomes. Either we would feel proud about ourselves and our ministry because of how much better we're doing than someone else. That's outcome number one. Or the second outcome is that we would feel inadequate because our church isn't as big or as successful. Our ministry isn't as flourishing as that one over there run by my classmate. And both of those outcomes take us away from what really matters in ministry. Paul says in the verses following that what really matters in ministry is that the gospel is being proclaimed such that people are growing in faith and the gospel is spreading to more and more people. And ultimately, the one responsible for people responding to the gospel and growing in faith is the one who gives the gospel its power and authority. It is foolish to puff yourself up in ministry because the ministry belongs to God. This is why Paul finishes off chapter 10 with these verses in verse 17 and 18. Paul says, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. You see, these super apostles have been promoting themselves by comparing their ministry to others, including Paul's. 
And in doing so, they had lost sight of why they had this ministry in the first place. In contrast, Paul is quick to give all the credit to God and select the impact of the gospel speak for itself. His leadership is apparent not by his own self-promotion, but by what God has done through Paul's faithful gospel proclamation. See, Paul's leadership is not a self-promoting leadership, but leadership exercised through the proclamation of the gospel. Now, as we step through this passage, we can see that Paul's leadership is shaped by the gospel of Jesus. It is a leadership that is not proud nor abrasive, but humble and gentle, just as Jesus humbled himself to death on the cross for our sake. It is a leadership that is not all about the leader, but about the people he or she serves, just as Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. It is a leadership that is not about performance and achievements, but about growing people in faith and obedience so that more might hear the message of salvation to eternal life and come to faith in Jesus. This is the gospel shape of Paul's leadership. And this is the sort of leadership that we also ought to see in our Christian communities. You see, we want leaders who are humble and gentle who are people-focused, and who seek to grow people in faith and obedience by the power, authority, and proclamation of the gospel. So here's a question to reflect on as we seek to consider the impact of God's word to our lives today. And the question is this. Is this the type of leadership that we value and uphold? When we look to our leaders... Do we expect them to be humble and focused on growing people in the gospel? Or do we perhaps expect them to be charismatic, visionary, relatable, pragmatic, or to have whatever other leadership traits that our world values? Now, this isn't to say that our leaders can't be charismatic or visionary or relatable or pragmatic, but the most crucial thing for our Christian leaders is that they lead with the gospel. You see, if the goal of the Christian leader is to grow people, God's people in faith and obedience, then it must be the gospel that empowers and shapes them. Because it is through the gospel message that we are able to place our faith in the saving work of Jesus. And, and it is through the gospel message that we are able to confess his lordship and so submit our lives to him. And so our leadership needs to be shaped and driven by the gospel. So what can we be doing as a church to foster a culture of gospel-shaped and gospel-driven leadership in our church? Well, firstly, let's make it a habit to give thanks to God for the humility and gentleness of our leaders. If you're a Christian then at least one person in your life has led you by proclaiming the gospel to you. And so you're here now, growing in your faith and obedience because of their leadership. Praise God for them. 
and give thanks for all the Christian leaders in your life right now, from that first proclamation all the way to now, all those Christian leaders who are proclaiming the gospel to you, whether that's uh, on a Sunday or in your grow group or in your coffee catch-ups, kids' play dates, family devotional times. Praise God for those Christian leaders, for their humility and for their desire to serve you. Second, let's re-examine our own expectations for what a good leader is meant to look like and what it is a good leader is meant to achieve. You see, it can be easy to let our complaining about someone's lack of leadership qualities be a smokescreen for our own unwillingness to let a leader's faithful gospel ministry challenge and transform us. But if we truly desire to live out the truth of the gospel, then a good Christian leader ought to be someone who fosters gospel growth and who lives out the truth of the gospel for themselves. Are those the qualities that you are looking for in a leader? Will you uphold and promote and submit to these leaders? Or do you still desire leadership qualities that are shaped by the world rather than by the gospel? Thirdly, let's pray for our leaders. Because we value leadership that is shaped not by the flesh or by the world, but by the gospel, it is critical that we pray. That we pray asking God to protect and nurture and strengthen our leaders. Our leaders are not infallible. They are tempted by worldly measures of leadership just as much as we are tempted to follow those who exhibit worldly measures of leadership. Pray that they would be humble, that they would be prayerfully dependent on God, and that they would be motivated by the gospel of Jesus. And lastly, as we lead others, regardless of whether you're in a formal position of leadership or not, let's keep the gospel at the center of what we do. Whatever we say and do at church, whatever our attitude is towards serving and outreach, let's ensure that all of it is characterized by the humility and gentleness of Christ and geared towards the goal of helping others to grow in faith and obedience. I want to share with you um, a story about one of my previous pastors. Now, one of my, uh, this previous pastor, he'll be the first to admit that He's nothing special as a leader. Uh, English was his second language, and and he would preach to us in English. And so his preaching was faithful, uh, but not always inspiring or engaging. He was quiet and introverted, and so he was a tiny bit awkward in social situations. He grew up in a different culture to us, and so he had a very hard time relating to us who had grown up in Australia. He struggled with anxiety. And that really impacted his confidence in his ministry. And in the five or so years he was with our congregation, there was not a time when he didn't want to leave for a different ministry role. He would even pray to God, asking to call him somewhere else. And yet, he was a faithful servant to our congregation. You could tell that he, he truly cared for our spiritual growth, And he would always text people, asking them how he could be praying for them. 
And the thing that struck me most about him and that left, has left the biggest impression on my own life and my own ministry was his humility. He was someone who not only ministered the gospel to us faithfully, but truly modeled the impact of the gospel in his own life through his humility. And so I praise God for him and for his faithful gospel ministry to me over all of those years. And I pray that it is this sort of gospel leadership that will characterize our church so that we might continue to preach the gospel here at SLE Church and beyond to the ends of the earth. Let me pray to close. Almighty God, you alone have authority and power. We pray that you would send down your gracious spirit on all Christians, and especially on our leaders and the people in their care. We pray that their leadership will not be swayed by worldly expectations, but would instead be shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Please protect them from selfish gain and sinful desires, and please continue to bless them and their ministries that they might please only you. We pray that at SLE Church we would value, uphold, and pray for our leaders as they faithfully, humbly, and sacrificially serve. And we ask this for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.